I want to put some uh, extra emphasis on what's coming up in the month of August with apologetics that we've been mentioning. Um, we got a great speaker for the first Sunday, which is next week. Apologetics, again, is a, a defense of the Christian faith. And we have Gavin Ortland coming, talking about five ways that beauty points to the existence of God. So for the month of August, it's a time to invite friends or family who might be interested or you might... Um, want to hear those types of things. There's more information. It's all on our website, svccchurch.com. Okay, today, a little bit different. Typically, every year, the last week of July, we take a break from this series before we enter into apologetics and kind of have an emphasis on, on one component of the ministry here at SVCC. But today, what I wanted to do is talk about what we mean when we say gospel-centered and mission-focused. Um, that phrase you pretty much see everywhere when you're here. It's on our webpage, it's on the handouts, whenever we have promotional material, it's going to say South Valley somewhere, and then it's going to say gospel-centered, mission-focused as well. So what exactly do we mean? Like what precisely do we mean when we say gospel and when we say mission? Because oftentimes, especially in the church world, there's terms that we use so frequently, we begin to use them a little... Um, haphazardly and they become an umbrella term for like anything and anything relating to the faith. So um, for instance, you might hear someone say the gospel is the fact that God has a plan for your life. Now, uh, I believe God has a plan for your life, but that is not the gospel. When we say the gospel, it means something specific. And you have to look through scriptures in order to sort of get that understanding in that definition. And so same way with mission. And so we just want to be precise in what we're saying so that we know as a church what exactly we mean. Now, we're going to start with the word gospel. And I want you to understand that whatever we say of the gospel, uh, it's, not, it's, it's not good enough. It's not big enough. The same, uh, of course, applies to God. Like if you begin to speak of the characteristics and attributes of God, you have to start with the premise that whatever human finite language you were using to attempt to describe the infinite one, it's falling short in some areas. And likewise, the gospel is so grand, so big, so large, that we can't possibly in 40 minutes cover all that it entails. But we want to at least get to sort of a, an approximation of, of what we mean when we say the word gospel. Okay, let's start. C.S. Lewis says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, the sun is not merely an object that you can look at. Don't, you'll burn your eyes. But it's not merely an object you can look at. The sun enables you to see all of reality. So it's not necessarily merely an object that you look at. It's, it's an object that helps you perceive the world. Or another way to think of that same concept is the example of a set of glasses. When you put on glasses with like a tint, you are going to see the outside world through that tint. And, you know, sometimes there's like a pink tint, a yellow tint, an orange tint, a blue tint, and, and all of the world is colored through those set of lenses. Likewise, for the Christian, the gospel is not merely something you look at and kind of hold. For the Christian, the gospel must become the lens by which you see the world. So that every encounter, every situation, every human being that you ever see, talk with, 
you are seen through the lens of the gospel. You see things in a certain manner. One of the kind of unhelpful ways we think about the gospel is we often think about it in terms of like the ABCs. Um, everyone, you, you go to preschool very early on or in kindergarten and you learn the alphabet, okay? The ABCs. And oftentimes Christians will think the gospel is similar to the ABCs in that it's what you learn at the beginning. The gospel is the first thing that you, you kind of hear about and then you become a Christian and then you move on to like the deeper things. So the gospel in that sense functions as a front door to the house. Like you believe the gospel, you open the front door, and then you go and explore the rest of the house. You learn the ABCs, and then you move on to greater things. And so someone might say, yeah, I believe the gospel, and that's when I got saved, but now I really want to look at like the heavy stuff, the meaty stuff. I want to get into like some deep theology. And what you have to understand is that the gospel is not the ABCs as the thing that you learn in preschool and move past. The gospel is the ABCs in the sense that it is the alphabet for the Christian, that all words and future sentences will be composed by the gospel. It is the thing that lets you have language and communication. Everything is built and predicated upon this gospel. It is not just the front door to the house and then you go on and explore. The gospel is the whole house. It's not just a front door that you move beyond. It is the entirety of the house. Paul writes in Romans, it's crazy, this is, this is one of the most revealing statements in the book of Romans. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now follow this. Who's Paul writing to? Romans. The Church of Rome, right? This Church of Rome is filled with Christians. And they've been Christian different amounts of time, but some have been Christians for some time. They've matured in the faith. They've grown. Nevertheless, what is Paul eager to do? Paul is eager to go to Christians so that he may preach the gospel to them. He's eager to preach the gospel to believers. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you already kind of understand a part of where this is going. Because again, unfortunately, sort of in the Christian world, we often think the gospel is, that's just the first thing you believe to become a Christian, and then you move past it. Paul's saying, oh no, you believers there, you might have been Christians for years, I got to get you so I can tell you more about the gospel. So it's not something you move past, it's not the ABCs and preschools, it's the alphabet, it's not the front door, it's the entire house. Christian, for the rest of your life, for the rest of our lives, we must saturate ourselves in the message of the gospel. Which brings us to the main point of all of this is, well then, okay, what exactly is the gospel? Now, here's the big problem. And you might have noticed this with a lot of things. Uh, the Bible doesn't have one of those, uh, you know, after the uh, appendices in the book, the textbook, then there's the glossary. There's the, like, glossary of terms. So whatever word you didn't know, you can look it up and it tells you an exact definition. 
it doesn't do that with a lot of stuff, right? So you encounter words in the Bible and you go, I don't, like, I kind of know what that means, but you've rarely, we rarely take time to say, okay, what exactly do, so like say even the word righteousness, you kind of sort of know what that means. Like what exactly does it mean? What exactly does sanctification mean? Where does the gospel mean? What is it? So even though there's no definition, the term is used all throughout, and we see it discussed, talked about, elaborated on, it's expounded, and so what we need to do is sort of look at the big puzzle pieces and bring them together and then take the step back so we could see what the scriptures are saying, what are they trying to tell us when they use the word gospel. So we're going to do a couple puzzle piece things. First, what does the word gospel like literally mean? Before we even look into the scriptures, what does it literally mean? In the New Testament, the Greek word is euangelion. And euangelion just simply means good news. And that may not seem like a big deal, but it's incredibly important. Because by nature, the definition is news. It's not an offer. It's not five steps to success. It's not here's what can happen. Here's the wonderful plan for your life. Although those things might be good. At its core, the gospel is news. It's an announcement. Something has occurred, and now something is being proclaimed in light of an event. So think of the news that you see on TV. Something happens in the world, it has effects and ramifications, and so there's reporting on it. By nature, whatever the gospel is, it's an announcement. It's news. Something has occurred. Now, this word euangelion, good news, has resonance in, in two different worlds, the Roman world and the Jewish world. In the Roman world, it has resonance with sort of the world of, of the military. So in the Roman world, if Caesar went out and fought some major battle or war and he was victorious, a kind of herald or a messenger would leave that fight after it's over and he would go out and proclaim the euangelion, the good news of Caesar's victory over his enemies. So follow this. When the first, in the first century, when the Christians were going around proclaiming Jesus as king and that Jesus having a gospel, in the Roman world, people would be familiar with Caesar being victorious over his enemies and the messenger going to announce, our king is Caesar. Our king is victorious. He has defeated his enemies and this is what it means for you. Keep that in your mind. It's like there's an announcement. Something has occurred. A king has defeated his enemies, and this is what it means for you. In the Jewish world, it's very similar, but rather than um, Caesar being victorious, it has to do with the God of Israel being victorious. So Yahweh is the king and God of Israel, and there was a hope in the Old Testament that the God of Israel would one day finally, climactically defeat his enemies, vindicate his people, and bring about peace on earth. So you get hints of this in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 52, it says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Incredibly important. In the Jewish mind, the good news is this hope. And it comes out many times in the book of Isaiah. This hope that one day the God of Israel will bring salvation and peace and happiness to his people. And then people will be able to announce, 
your God reigns. That's a kingly term. The God of Israel is king. He is reigning, and in his rule and reign, there is peace and happiness and salvation. So when you hear the word euangelion in the first century being proclaimed by the first Christians, those are sort of the two worlds in which that word resonates in, the Roman world and the Jewish world. So be thinking already, a king has fought a battle. He is victorious. He has defeated his enemies. And now he's ruling and reigning with peace and salvation brought to his people. Okay, next clue. Comes to us from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I know I just said in the scriptures they never give you a definition of the gospel, which is true. The closest, however, you get to a definition of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what it says. This is Paul writing to a church in Corinth. And he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So essentially saying, pay attention. The gospel is super important. It was handed down to me, and I'm handing it down to you. And then he says this, second paragraph. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So let's underline the main part. Now, what stands out in that, in that sort of sentence to you? There's something unique about it. It's kind of weird. I'll give you a hint. It kind of seems redundant. It says, in accordance with the scriptures, twice. Twice. And you know, if you're a teacher and you're telling your third grade class, like, what's important, what do you do? You can tell them, well, this is important, or you could repeat it in accordance with the Scripture, in accordance with the Scripture. So, the first Christians believed that the story of Jesus was not just a random story that entered into human history, but that the story of Jesus was the climactic ending to the long story that was taking place in Israel. So, you can't cut off the story of Jesus from the Hebrew Scriptures. You don't get to say, okay, all this Old Testament stuff happened, and uh, Israel didn't do what they were supposed to, and this is all bad, and now God's doing some new thing. God is doing a new thing, but that new thing is coming as the climactic ending, the story reaching its zenith point. The Hebrew Scriptures have all been leading here. You cannot divorce Jesus from the Hebrew Scriptures. All of this is occurring just like the Old Testament said. And then it gives us the, these key components. And they sound simple, but incredibly important. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. So notice these are historical events. Died, buried, raised. And this gets us back to our original kind of understanding of the, the word euangelion, right? It's an announcement. It's news that something has occurred. What is the news then? Well, at minimum, it has to do with these events. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is an event. It happened in history. It's concrete reality. So already you begin to kind of put these pieces together. This is an announcement that there is some king who's been victorious over his enemies. And how did he do that? 
The Christians claim that Jesus did that through his life, death, and resurrection. A third piece of the puzzle. This one's really interesting and really easy to miss. If you open your Bible and you open to the beginning of the New Testament, the first four books that you will encounter are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four books are called Gospels. And at the top of the page, you're going to see it say the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, and the Gospel according to John. Now, what are those four Gospels doing? They're telling you a story, a story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's really easy to miss. So if you were to ask Matthew, tell me the gospel, what would he do? He goes, oh, I wrote a whole book on it. It's called the gospel of Matthew. Here you go. This is the beginning of the story of Jesus. And you would get Jesus' birth. You would get his life, his miracles, his actions, his deeds, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the ascension. Follow this. When the first Christians said the word gospel, they were telling you the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now you kind of put all of those things together, right? So uh, the gospel is an announcement. It's, It's news. It's particularly good news about a king who has been victorious. Well, how has he been victorious? The gospel writers are saying in his life, death, and resurrection, he has defeated his enemies. And now he's ruling and reigning as king, and he brings about peace and salvation. And so you you kind of say, well, how could we articulate that? And you would articulate it differently if you had a page to articulate it. You'd have a a different response if I said, write all, sum all that up in a paragraph, sum it all up in a page, sum it all up in five words. You'd have different ways of doing it. However, if I were to try and summarize that in a sentence, a simple sentence that then could be expounded on, I would say something like this. The gospel is the announcement. It is the good news about the victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death through his life, death, and resurrection. The king went out and fought a battle against his enemies, who are Satan, sin, and death. And he defeats them, not through traditional methods, but through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, when you look in the book of Acts and see how the first Christians preach the gospel— They're going to preach the gospel again and again in the same similar fashion. They're going to tell you the story of Israel, and they're going to tell you the climax of the story of Israel, Christ crucified, and him coming back in power and glory and being resurrected, and how he's now ruling and reigning as king. And in light of all of this, you ought to repent of your sins, put your faith in him, and confess him as Lord. Read the book of Acts. It'll happen again and again and again. There's been a victory. The king's won. Send out the herald and the messengers and let the whole world know. Our king has defeated his enemies, and this is what it means for you. Who were his enemies? It's it's, it's interesting. So you have Satan, sin, and death. And you go, are those just three random bad things that you picked? Like, could there be five bad things? Uh, Yes, there's more bad things, but the three major enemies in Scripture are always these three. And they're all intricately bound up. So think about this. Think about how the story starts. 
How does, the, how does the human story begin? Well, humans rebel, right? Sin. Well, you know, what, what did that cause? Death. Well, how did sin and death enter into the equation? Well, there was another foreign intruder that m- messed things up, and there was temptation. This kind of evil, shadowy serpent figure, right? So since the very beginning of the story, there has been a presentation of these three enemies of old. Death came from sin, and sin came from temptation. And they're all bound up together. And if God is going to bring about peace and salvation to the world, then he better take care of these three great old enemies. Okay, now, kind of simple enough. Okay, the gospel is the victory of Jesus, um, and he, was, he accomplishes victory by his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Fine, fair enough, okay. Where it gets infinitely complex is that that news that announcement, that you're, you're at late night, you're about to go to sleep, and then you hear some major announcement on the news. That event has implications and ramifications at every level of reality. So it's not just, oh, Jesus died 2,000 years ago and then he came back. That historic event ripples throughout all of history and all of reality. So think of, uh, think of a big giant rock being thrown, in, thrown into a perfectly still lake. What happens? Big rock hits the water, and immediately there's a big splash, and then you get the first ripple, right? And then what happens? A second ripple, and a third ripple, and it expands and expands and expands. What modern Christians do, not intentionally, just by default, because we're hyper-individualistic, we live in an individualistic culture, we immediately hear the gospel message and go, okay, what precisely does that mean for me? And usually the question behind that question is like, okay, how can I not be in trouble anymore and go to heaven? Like, tell me how. And then what happens? We end up preaching the gospel like that. We remove all the beauty and intricacies of it and be like, okay, here's the gospel. The gospel is how you get to heaven. Now, does the gospel include a path for forgiveness and peace and heaven? Yes, of course but it's, it's, much, it's much larger than that. So the rock goes in, and on an individual level, yes, um, there can be forgiveness of sins, but then the ripples start going out, and then you start to ask other questions like, well, what does the gospel do to my future? What does it do to my past? What does it do to suffering? Hey, maybe not just my suffering, but what does the gospel have to say about human suffering? And so the ripples begin to go out, and then you say, well, what does it mean for my relationship with my family? And then you give it time, and the gospel splash goes out even further. The ripples grow and you start asking questions that aren't just for the individual, but for maybe the community or the world or the entire cosmos. What does the gospel mean for education? What does it mean for the nations? What does it mean for war? What does it mean for the universe? Because it's that big. The event of the gospel is so big that the ripples touch every part of human history and every fabric of reality. That is the message the Christians are saying. Not some guy died 2,000 years ago, but the event of the death and resurrection of God himself fundamentally altered all of reality. So you say, well, what does it mean for me? Yeah, good enough, but think about the macro level. What does it mean for the nations? Well, for one, the good news means that a king has defeated his, his enemies and is now reigning and ruling as the victorious one. Therefore, whatever earthly kings are installed are installed to steward 
in a wise and good way the actual authority of God. Therefore, the ruler can't become corrupt and evil and think they can get away with it because ultimately they're not completely in charge. They are to steward the authority from the one true king of heaven and earth. So every human being and every leader and every king will have to give an account. What else does it mean? Think not just like that in sort of the like geopolitical sphere, but think about the relationship between nations and, and ethnicities. The gospel says that Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death and is now forming one people. Therefore now there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So the hostility among the nations needs to start evaporating and reconciliation needs to start occurring because that is what Christ is doing. That is what he has purchased, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the gospel can be applied to any and all things. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm not just saying that to be like hyperbolic in my language. When we say we are gospel-centered at this church, it is the belief that the event that occurred in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has something to say about everything, from small things to big things. Think about the, the universe. What does the scripture say that all of creation is currently doing? All of creation is currently longing and groaning for the great redemption for new heavens and new earth. The universe is aching for the gospel to come to bear on all of reality. That's big epic language, right? The ripples keep going further and further out. Now, that's a very big way the gospel can do things, but let me show you uh, something incredibly practical, because I said the gospel has something to say about the smallest of things and the biggest of things. This is a we, we did some theology, now we'll get into something extremely uh, pragmatic and practical. Uh, this was something one of my professors in seminary started to, to kind of drill into my head. Um, his name was Dr. Louis, and he would say, look, the gospel, look, look at, the gospel will deal with even the smallest of things in your life. And so on here, on the left-hand side, I have uh, types of lies. On the right-hand side, I have motivation behind the different types of lies. So I'm going to take a simple thing like the struggle you have with telling the truth in life and look at the motivation for those and show you what the gospel has to say about those. Because if the gospel has something to say about everything in reality, it ought to say something about your problem with exaggerating. See what I'm saying? So, types of lies on the left. There's cruel lies, cowardly lies, conceited lies, calculated lies. On the right, you have motivation behind them. So let's go one by one. There's a cruel lie, and that's motivated by hate. So let's say there's someone in life you don't like. You know, maybe you already pictured them. Maybe you don't even have to picture them. You just have to look. Um, you better listen to this, man. Okay. It's motivated by hate. You don't like this person. If you get the chance, you'll say horrible things about them. Many of you have been here. Many of you are here. There's just people you don't like. And if given the opportunity, you will totally slander them. You'll totally do it, okay? You don't like them. You hate them. What does the gospel have to say to that? Well, you begin to preach the gospel to yourself. As a Christian, you preach the gospel where you go, 
well, like, if I believe in Jesus, I'll go to heaven. No, again, although that's, that's true, that's, that's not what you would do. You would remind yourself that I'm hating someone. I've made someone an enemy. My whole salvation was predicated upon the idea that while I was an enemy of God, he died for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Christ didn't die for you on your best day when you had it all together and you were so awesome and he's like, I just can't resist, you're so cute. Christ died for you at your worst. While we were sinners and enemies of God, he died for us. So if Christ died for me when I was opposed to him and an enemy, well, then I better start learning to extend grace to my enemies. The cowardly lie, it's done in fear. So you're at work and your boss says, hey, did you forward those emails I told you to? Sure thing, boss, done it. Uh, well, did we get a response yet? Uh, I'll get back to you. Let me go to the bathroom real quick. Forwarding emails. It's a simple lie. It's not like you may say that's not even a big deal. Lying is always a big deal because you're creating an alternative reality. You're creating a fake you. You're speaking lies into existence. And so, what do you do? You would say, you know what? I'm, I'm, this, like, I'm fearful over the most dumb stuff. And you remind yourself, your three great enemies, the only things that you ultimately, as far as eternity is concerned, had reason to fear, Satan, sin, death, they've been taken care of. So I'm not going to allow smaller things to cause fear in me. To such a degree, it's not wrong to be a, like, you know, if you do, do something and there's like a, there's a bear approaching you or something. It's, it's not my point. But the point is your fear can drive you to sin in all sorts of ways. A conceited lie, it's done in insecurity. You ever meet those people who have to one-up everything you say? You know, oh, my tomato garden's going good. They're already, my tomato's like already three feet tall. Oh, that's, that's cute, three foot tall. You know, mine are like, I don't know, I just have a, a life-size Shaquille O'Neal uh, thing next to him, and they're taller than him. I didn't bother measuring it. It's like, yeah, I went fishing, and I caught, um, I caught this nice trout about this big. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, the trout I caught last week was, was this big. There's, you know, they're always having a one-up. And you know that's usually rooted in insecurity. You're just trying to feel like you're something special. You don't feel good in your own skin, so you're always having to one-up other people. So what does the gospel have to say about that? Don't you know how much you are worth? God, the King of heaven and earth, left heaven, came to earth to die on a cross to save you? Do you know how valuable you are? And you're going to sit here and try to one-up a fishing story? The calculated lie, you're trying to climb the corporate ladder at work, and so you kind of just spread lies about the incompetency of other people at work, kind of just downplay them when no one's looking and boost yourself up. It's rooted in selfishness. And again, you just remind yourself, the one being in all of reality that had every right to be selfish laid it all down and became selfless to the point of death. So if he can do that, I don't have to slander my coworkers. 
And so the gospel, you see, can be integrated and has something to say for everything, from the biggest of things to the smallest of things. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has something to say about anything and everything. Now, out of that, out of that understanding of the gospel, then flows the mission and the mission of the church. So what do we mean when we say mission? Now, there's tons of places in the Bible to go to that talk about the mission of the church, and you might already have some in your head, but probably one of my favorite ones is found in 2 Corinthians, because I think it, it's, it's like mind-boggling what's being said here. Like, you might have read this verse, but you've you got to read it and slow down. It's, it's mind-boggling. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's dealing with the gospel. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has defeated sin. You have been forgiven. You have been made new. There was something new happening inside of you. This is all gospel language. And then verse 18, because of the gospel, it says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Okay, let me underline the crazy parts. This should make everyone in this room happy and scared at the same time. The gospel has done something into you. And so this is being done by God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And Christ has reconciled the underlined part, reconciled us to himself. And then what does he do? He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. You have been reconciled with God. Therefore, God now gives you the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. Follow those underlying things. Look at You've been reconciled. Now for God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. He's entrusted you with the message of reconciliation. He has made you an ambassador of Christ. And now he's making his appeal to, of, to the world through us. Remember, that's like happy, exciting. Oh my gosh, I'm being entrusted with this. Oh my gosh, I'm being entrusted with this. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You've been entrusted with the message. You've made an ambassador of Christ, and now God is making his appeal through you. Ooh. Think about that. Picture um, an engaged couple. They're about to get married, and the dude does something uh, that's misinterpreted, but like really missing. It's a big misunderstanding, and the girl says, I will never talk to you again blocked him, deleted him, no, no hope. And so what is the guy to do? It's like, no, I love you. Like, this is, you're, you're going the wrong way. This is how, he has to like get a friend that he trusts to say, please go talk to her. Tell her what actually happened. She's, she's not, she's, we're not, she misinterpreted that. So then, this dude's future, the love of his life, is like being entrusted 
to this guy's friend to go make the appeal. Now, that's a silly example, but what, what is this saying? We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with the message. We are ambassadors of Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. The mission of the church is this, to see all people, men and women, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, come to know their creator, their maker, and their king to receive forgiveness of sins. Now, we say we go about this mission both locally and globally. Uh, and we, you might hear us say things like across the street and around the world. And so what do we mean by that? Locally, we mean that Christians ought to be uh, sharing Jesus um, with like their friends, their family, their co-workers, anyone who will listen. It's like, we're ambassadors, right? God's entrusted you. You're an ambassador of Christ. He's making his appeal through you. Um, but also on top of that, when it comes to things locally, we realize that um, oftentimes you need to show people that you actually love and care for them before they'll ever even care about what you have to say. So it's very difficult to, to listen to someone tell you about the love of God when you haven't ate for a few days and you're hungry. It's hard to listen to the gospel on an empty stomach type of thing. Or think about um, the young woman who got pregnant and now she's terrified and she's having the baby and her own parents disowned her. It's very difficult to believe that there's some heavenly father who loves you when everyone has disowned you and you don't feel love from any of your friends or family. Right? Sometimes it's hard to feel the love of God, the love of the Father, when you're not feeling anyone show you any earthly love. So the church realizes that they have to demonstrate the love and care of God. And we do this with our words and our actions and our deeds. And then we speak God's truth and God's love and God's grace over people. And so we partner um, at this church with many local kind of projects and, and ministries to do this, to demonstrate the love of God in order that we might ultimately speak the truth to them that there is actually a God in heaven who does indeed love them. And so there's a number of ways. I just put a few up here, but we support crisis pregnancy centers in Gilroy and Hollister and Form Choices and, and Hollister Pregnancy Center. We partner with Foster the Bay to make sure that kids who don't have a home to be, to be in, to be placed in, where they could be told they're valuable and loved and cared for. We want to make sure that every kid has a place to go and support programs. We have food distribution going on at this church, programs that are helping people who are experiencing loss and depression and, and addictions. We have microsites going into places to do many church services where there's people who can't physically come to church. Now, all of this is done. Why? because we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We show people the love and care of God in action, in, in, in reality. And then we tell them that this is flowing. The reason why we have this love and care is because it's flowing down to us from God in heaven. And then we talk about doing this kind of globally. Um, and we do a number of different kind of global mission stuff, but I want to highlight what we would just call like our focus countries. 
And these are um, countries where we have significant partnerships on the ground. So it's not as if we're just a church and we're going to go over to some country on the other side of the world and be like, oh, this is how ministry's done. There's people on the ground who are doing great ministry. How do we partner with them, empower them, enhance what they're already doing? And so, for example, in Nigeria, we partnered with ministries and we support a, a nonprofit hospital. There is a church planting network. There is a Bible college. There is resources and food distribution, medical clinics. In Haiti, we're pretty much the number one support. The, we are the, the number one, but we support pretty much the, the entirety of this project. But there's an orphanage with 25 children. Because of all of our time, resources, money, and energy going to the mission, those 25 kids are being cared for, loved, given an education, and being told about the love of God. That's incredible. That's because Christians give their energy, their time, their resources, their money to the mission of God. In the Dominican Republic, we have a partnership fighting child trafficking. In Tanzania, we have partnerships with Hope of the Nations and, and Fellowship Arts doing vocational training. There's a primary school. There's a church planting network. There's a Bible college. After school programs to give kids food and again, you do all of this, we do all of it, not to kind of, oh, look at nice things that we do, because Christ changed us. We were reconciled. We knew the love of God, and now it flows through us, and it flows out to the world. This is what we mean when we say gospel-centered, mission-focused. We are focused on what Christ has done. Something happened. There is an announcement the king defeated his enemies, and now he's ruling and reigning as victorious and calls all people to repent and put their faith in him. And as we receive his grace and his love and he changes us from the inside out, that begins to flow. It flows out to the world. There's language in the scriptures that talk about your cup overfloweth. It's like God's love and grace comes down and then it goes out to the world. You've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So when we say gospel-centered, our intent is that we really, we really mean what we, what we are saying. That in everything, in everything we speak of, every scripture we address, every sermon you hear, every program, that somehow the gospel is integrated into that and the gospel can speak into every situation. And by mission focus, we mean by what the gospel has done to us, we are going to be fixed upon the mission that he's given the church. Now, uh, as we close and prepare for communion, there's a, a string of verses that, that I didn't put together. Um, I, I forget even where I found these, but it, it's sort of like someone took scriptures um, that remind us of what, who God is and what he's done and the way they're strung together, it's, to me, it's a way of saying, like, all the things that we stress about, all the things that we worry about, all the problems in the world, like, you have to understand the giant rock has hit the lake, and the ripples are going out, and it's reverberating throughout history. And because of that, you can exhale. This is who God is, and this is what he's done. So I'm just going to read them to you as we go into communion. We know that we can cast all our anxieties on him 
because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. We know if we dwell in the shelter of the Most High, we will abide in the shadow of the Most High. We will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, Psalm 91, 1 through 2. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And we know in times of desperation, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, Psalm 34. And we know that in this world, we will have trouble, but in him we can have peace because he has overcome the world. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it, is it God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Center your life on the gospel. And as you center your life on who he is and what he did on your behalf, your eyes will be fixed on his mission and you will join him in the great reconciliation to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come together under the banner of Christ. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and remember. Likewise, he takes the cup. It's the cup of the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. When we take this, we are giving our allegiance to a king. You are the victorious one. Christ has defeated his enemies and grants to us forgiveness and adoption is to his, into his family. So, Lord, we declare our allegiance to the one true king of heaven and earth. And Father, as we enter into worship, as always, we want the name of your son Jesus to be exalted. There is no name higher than the name of Jesus, and it's because he has ascended, he has conquered his enemies, he has defeated our enemies, and now he sits as the rightful king of the, the earth. Lord, help us to honor him and worship him as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.